Hi all! Well, if one year is long enough to ingrain a tradition, welcome back to the traditional Nobel Prize special episode, where we discuss, still, the most famous prize in physics. You'll remember that last year, the prize was awarded to the LIGO collaboration for the experimental discovery of gravitational waves, confirming one of the key consequences of Einstein's theory of general relativity, and providing a whole new form of astronomy, whereby very massive objects like neutron stars and black holes can be studied based on the gravitational waves that they emit when they merge together. Well, I say the 2017 prize was awarded to the LIGO collaboration. It was actually awarded to Kip Thorne, Rainer Weiss and Barry Barish, because the rules of the Nobel Prize do not allow it to be awarded to a collaboration between many scientists, even though thousands of people collaborated on the LIGO experiment. It's limited to three, and they also all still have to be alive, which I suppose stops Newton and Einstein from getting an endless string of Nobel Prizes, so it's good in that respect. While I understand the idea that you can't award a Nobel Prize to thousands of people, or where does it stop, the three-person rule can often seem a little bit archaic. Prizes are always arbitrary and foolish things that will leave certain individuals and certain fields of physics feeling hard done by, and believe me, I know some of them. But that doesn't stop them being worthy of note, if only for our purposes as a great excuse to talk about some really interesting bits of physics. So as you probably already know by now, the Nobel Prize in Physics 2018 was awarded to another trio, Gerard Moreau, Arthur Ashkin and Donna Strickland, for groundbreaking inventions in the field of laser physics. Specifically, Arthur Ashkin was awarded the prize for the invention of optical tweezers and their application to biological systems, and Moreau and Strickland were awarded the prize for developing chirped pulse amplification, a method of generating very short but very high-intensity pulses of light with lasers. Now naturally, there was a good deal of attention that arose around the fact that Strickland was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in Physics for 55 years, isn't that shocking? And only the third person ever, uh, only the third woman ever, the other two winners being Maria Goppert-Meyer for her discoveries involving the shell structure of nuclei, and Marie Curie for her work on radioactivity. Now Jocelyn Bell Burnell is among the many women who should have received the Nobel Prize in Physics. And in her case, it's particularly galling given that it was given to her male supervisor, even though she built the detector, reviewed the data, and pursued the signal over her supervisor's objections. Now, I don't want to dwell on this for too long, because I think it can overshadow the achievement in the relevant physics, and much as this probably turns into a politics podcast at times, that's not what it's about. But I think part of what equality will mean when we get there, and we're nowhere near getting there yet, as this and so many other recent developments illustrate, is that people will finally be judged for their achievements first and foremost. There won't be any asterisks or any sniping involved. There won't, this won't be the first question that Donna Strickland is asked in every interview. How does it feel to be the first female winner, blah, blah, blah. And we can just appreciate people for their accomplishments. But that said, given that the world we live in is still so unequal, and the STEM subjects, and physics in particular, are amongst the worst for harbouring institutional discrimination and prejudice, I would say that the Nobel Committee are finally starting to correct some grievous historical oversights on their part. And I would say that no one should underestimate how much women in physics have to fight, how much they have to overperform and outperform their colleagues, and how little of the respect that they deserve they actually end up receiving. As bad as you think it is, it's probably worse, and the whole field has to go so much further to stop being this hostile environment filled with casual misogyny, whether it's spoken or unspoken. The fact that Strickland, for example, didn't even have a Wikipedia page before receiving the prize, despite being utterly central to this very important work that forms the foundation of so much of modern-day laser use, including all of laser eye surgery, and 
she hasn't had that Wikipedia page for the last 30 years while she's been since this work was done in 1985. This was her entire PhD thesis. She was one of the only two authors on the paper that introduced chirped pulse amplification. Any scientist will tell you that the fact that it's her PhD thesis means that she did the bulk of the work. That just illustrates the inequity here. It's not that female scientists and female physicists don't exist or don't contribute, it's that they're not recognised as much when they do. And when you exclude more than half of the population from getting into science or being recognised for their accomplishments, you exclude more than half of the world-changing ideas that they can have, and the world-changing work that they could otherwise do, as this illustrates. So if nothing else is said on the subject, I would direct you to a wonderful project that was undertaken by Jess Wade, that's at Jess Wade on Twitter, and Mayam Zelingalam, who is web un, uh, webmz underscore on Twitter. Uh, both of them are scientists who have been involved in marvellous and fantastic and successful outreach projects like 500 Women in Science, which provides people with lists of contacts to broaden the range of people they might speak to about media stories or on podcasts like this or invite onto panels. Well, the current campaign that they're involved with involves writing Wikipedia articles for underappreciated scientists. And this is really a positive way of both recognising people for their achievements and demonstrating to the wider world that not all scientists look like Isaac Newton. As Mayim puts it, we know that there is work to be done to make science a more equitable and just enterprise. So we're doing it. After all, she says, we're trained as scientists, so we understand how to identify a problem, collect and make sense of the evidence, and propose informed solutions. And we've been wielding that expertise to organise and advocate for science to do better by us. End quote. Amidst all of the depressing news lately, and those who follow developments in physics will know what I mean, if you don't, just head for particlesforjustice.org, these activists are an inspiration to me, and hopefully to you too. And hopefully, again, Strickland's Nobel Prize will inspire more people to pursue their interest in science than ever before. So without further ado for that, let's talk about that science. First off, Arthur Ashkin, who has won the Nobel Prize in his 90s, which is a good deal, uh, good job too, uh, and his invention of optical tweezers. So as we've discussed previously on this show, light and all forms of electromagnetic radiation, including radio waves and x-rays, can be shown, can be considered to be made up of wave-like particles called photons. Photons have momentum in just the same way that moving particles have momentum. And this means that when photons collide with particles of matter, they push on them in a similar way to a physical particle colliding with you that pushes on you. When you turn on the lights, a tiny, imperceptible force, a pressure, is being exerted on you by all of the photons of light as they rain down upon your head. The same is true with my laptop screen as this episode is recording. The photons of that are pushing me backwards into my chair. And this is referred to as the radiation pressure. And we talked about it in our very first episodes on the life cycles of stars. The largest stars are supported against gravitational collapse into themselves by exactly this radiation pressure. It's also key to the scheme behind the Starshot project, which is a rather fanciful but just possibly possible project, which aims to use high-energy laser pulses, much like those that were first made possible by Strickland and Moreau, who we'll talk about later, to push and accelerate probes close to the speed of light so that they can travel to our nearest neighbour stars in a reasonable amount of time. Ever since radiation pressure was discovered, there was always a question of whether it could be used to manipulate and push on objects. It arises straight out of Maxwell's equations, which became the theory of electromagnetism in the 1860s, and it was first experimentally measured in 1900. 
but the pressure under ordinary circumstances is pretty feeble. Let's say that you're right on the edge on the outside part of the bulb of a 75 watt light bulb, for example. If you're around 10 centimeters or 0.1 meters from that light source, then that 75 watts, while it spreads out over a sphere of area 4 times pi times 0.1 squared, which means that the intensity is around 600 watts per square meter. Dividing by the speed of light gives you the radiation pressure, which then is only a couple of millionths of a newton per meter squared. That's comparable to the pressure that you'd feel if you spread the weight of a grain of sand over your entire body. So obviously, given that being right next to a light bulb gives you this tiny amount of pressure comparable to the weight of a grain of sand, using torch bulbs to push shipping crates is obviously a no-go. But very light objects have the potential to be manipulated with very intense laser beams, which are capable of focusing a large amount of light intensity, and hence pressure, onto very small areas. It had been considered for a while that it might be possible to manipulate very small particles in this way, as if nudging them along, one photon at a time, tiny momentum transfer by tiny momentum transfer. But before the invention of the laser, there was simply no light source that could produce a sufficiently focused and energetic beam of light to do it. You have to remember that if you want to grab onto a particle and hold it, or push it along with light, you have to compete with the effects of, for example, Brownian motion from particles that randomly combine with the target in the atmosphere. Radiation pressure might be important in the vacuum of space, where there are fewer competing effects, there's no air resistance, there's no friction, there's no air pressure, but... And also, of course, in space you have plenty of very intense light sources like stars and so on. But in the earthly realm, these thermal effects, these particle collisions, these uh, atmospheric pressure and things like this tended to dominate over anything that light could produce. Until lasers. So Ashkin said that he first became fascinated with the idea of realising this in practice from a simple back-of-the-envelope calculation, much like the one that we just did a few moments ago with the light bulb. It suggested that the effects of radiation pressure from the newest generation of lasers should be possible to observe, and maybe even exploit, in the lab. But the problem had long been the competing forces that acted on these tiny particles when you attempted to trap or manipulate them with radiation alone. Over to Arthur Ashkin in his 1970 paper, The Acceleration and Trapping of Particles by Radiation Pressure, which has now won him the Nobel 48 years later. He wrote, quote, Historically, the main problem in studying radiation pressure has been the obscuring effect of thermal forces. These are caused by temperature gradients in the medium surrounding the object. When these gradients are caused by light, and the entire particle moves, the effect is called photophoresis. These forces are usually orders of magnitude larger than the radiation pressure, even with lasers. End quote. The issue here is that when you shine an intense laser light onto a particle, you're actually heating up the area that surrounds the particle that you're trying to move. And that causes these temperature gradients, it's hot in one place and cold to another, and as we all know, heat likes to flow from hot to cold. And that means the particles are moving, the small particles around the thing you're trying to move are moving around, and they crash into what you're trying to move. Because only one side of the particle is illuminated, and the surrounding air in that region is hotter, this particle will be pushed along by the hot molecules of air along the direction of the beam. But this method is imprecise, and it doesn't allow for a great deal of control over the particle. Ashkin's innovation was, in part, to start by using transparent spheres as the particles to move. 
This way, because the photons wouldn't be absorbed by the surface of the sphere and heat up the surrounding medium to the same extent, it would reduce the photophoretic effect so that radiation pressure could be measured in the lab for the first time. Ashkin described the experiment, and the surprising result that followed, in a later paper. He wrote, quote, A sample of transparent latex spheres surrounded in water was used to avoid any heating or radiometric forces. With just milliwatts of power, particle motion was observed in the direction of a mildly focused beam. The particle velocity was in approximate agreement with our crude force estimates, suggesting that this was indeed a radiation pressure effect. However, an additional unanticipated force component was soon discovered that strongly pulled particles located in the fringes of the beam into the high-intensity region on the beam axis. Once on axis, particles stayed there and moved forward, even if the entire beam was moved back and forth within the chamber. The particles were being guided by the light. They finally collected in a clump at the output face of the chamber. When the light was turned off, they wandered towards the fringes of the beam. If the light was turned on again, they were quickly pulled back into the beam axis. Was this transverse force component light pressure too? End quote. So this is really amazing. What he'd actually tried to do here was create a force that was expected that nudged particles along in the direction of the laser beam. But there was an additional mysterious force that seemed to drag them towards the centre of the laser beam. And this makes it much more likely that you're actually able to trap these tiny particles and manipulate them. It, it almost reminds me of a tractor beam in UFO lore, you know, when you're on the outside of the tractor beam and you get sucked towards the centre and then drawn into the UFO. Well... The source of this force, uh, we do actually understand it, unlike UFO tractor beams, which don't exist. The source of this force is down to the fact that the photons are electromagnetic radiation. And that means that they have electrical and magnetic fields associated with them as they move along. In fact, they're what we call transverse waves, which means that these electrical and magnetic fields are always perpendicular to the direction of travel. So when you focus intense laser light from these optical tweezers that Ashkin has invented onto a very small area, it leads to an electric field gradient. You have a very strong electric field where the photons are and weaker on the outside. Now when you have an electric field gradient like this, and it acts on a small particle that contains charges that are somewhat free to move around, you can get these electromagnetic forces, like the transverse force that he observed. So imagine that I have a metal sphere and inside it, there's all these free electrons floating around that can move around when electric fields push them around. When an electrical field is applied to that sphere, the electrons will all be pulled towards one side. That means that there's a big abundance of negative charge on that side of the sphere, and hence a positive charge on the other side of the sphere, because you've pulled negative electrons away from it. When you have two distributions of charge separated like this, that are opposite charge, we call that a dipole. It's a little bit like your classic bar magnet with a north pole and a south pole. Given that the distribution of this charge has changed, even though the whole sphere is electrically neutral, if we put a positive cl charge close to the negative end of the dipole, they'll attract each other. Which makes sense, because there's a lot of negative charges on one end of the sphere, so that part is obviously going to be attracted by a positive charge. This force isn't quite as strong as if there were no positive charges in the metal sphere at all, but it's still pretty strong. A similar thing happens to the tiny particles that are suspended in the optical tweezers that Ashkin invented. An electric dipole is induced due to the electric field gradient in the photon, 
and then that same electric field gradient drags the particles towards the central part of the beam. So this means that not only are you pushing them along in the direction of the beam, but the beam's own electric field is keeping them confined within the centre of the beam, where it's at its brightest, where the radiation pressure is the best. As I'm sure you'll agree, it's a pretty excellent feature for manipulating these dielectric particles. And that allows the optical tweezers to confine small molecules and particles extremely well. Even as he reported the initial results of his experiments trapping and manipulating small molecules in these optical bottles, made of two or more strong laser beams focused down to a very narrow area and exploiting these dipole forces and radiation pressures, Ashkin was already dreaming of more exotic possibilities. If the lasers were tuned to a particular wavelength, it might be possible to use a similar system to manipulate an individual atom. In fact, given that the precise wavelengths of light that molecules and atoms interact with depends on the specific structure of those atoms, using different wavelengths of light might allow you to manipulate different atoms. Which means that using a nice tunable laser, you could separate atoms and isotopes from each other using these similar optical tweezers techniques which has all kinds of applications. Stephen Chu, who later carried on some of the work that Ashkin began, also won the Nobel Prize in 1997 for his techniques in using lasers to cool and trap individual atoms in just this way. Okay, so what can you use these traditional optical tweezers for then, the ones that Ashkin invented? Well, as the name suggests, they're very useful for manipulating very small objects. Anything around 10 to 10,000 nanometers in diameter, which takes you from the range of individual molecules up towards simple bacteria and viruses. Obviously, if you're working on nanotechnology, the art of manipulating matter on this scale, optical tweezers can be a very useful tool indeed. Gold nanoparticles have been shifted around and arranged into various forms with optical tweezers. Optical tweezers have been used extensively, though, in biology to pick up, manipulate and study individual strands of DNA, individual E. coli bacterium, amongst other things. Famously, Stephen Chu's group twisted an individual strand of DNA into a knot, and then imaged it as it unwound itself. Because they only work with dielectric materials, that is, not conductors, but electrical insulators that can be polarised by electric fields in the way we described, they're ideal for the use of biological substances like cell membranes and cells themselves. And this has been crucial for the wonderful interdisciplinary world of biophysics, attempting to understand the physics of biological organisms. When you look at the wonderful range of solutions to problems in nature, there's beauty to be found all the way down, right down to the cellular level, and even the molecular level. Your body, every body for every complex animal and bacteria, is filled with these molecules that have incredibly complicated shapes. And these complicated shapes are tuned just right for moving individual sugars and molecules around the body, for example. Molecular motors are what we call any biological molecule that can move substances from one place to another, or convert energy into motion. For example, the proteins that control the movement of your muscles are molecular motors. Every heartbeat is driven into being by millions upon millions of these molecular motors. And these motors are actually often far more efficient in terms of converting stored energy into motion than any that humans have designed. We can look at the special rotating tails of an E. coli bacteria to understand how it moves. 
Now, because optical tweezers have a low spring constant, which means that they can be deformed quite easily, and they don't exert huge amounts of force, they turned out to be ideal for studying these delicate systems and getting a greater understanding of them. An awful lot of what we know about how these molecular biological processes work is due to optical tweezers. And naturally, this has all kinds of applications for medicine, for biologists, for understanding how evolution works, and in industrial solutions, because quite often the processes that have evolved in nature are far more efficient than what humans can do. So by mimicking these, are uh, you can mimic them, of course, only if you understand them with the use of these optical tweezers. But by mimicking them, we can do molecular manipulation better, perhaps, than uh, anything that we could come up with by ourselves. So naturally, because we're a futuristic kind of a show, I would be remiss not to mention the fact that manipulating individual molecules is also pretty crucial in synthetic biology. Creating these biomimetic structures, structures that mimic those which evolved in nature. So networks of artificial cells have been constructed by the careful use of optical tweezers, and they can be arranged in particular configurations that can sort different kinds of cells from each other, which again, you can understand why sorting one particular type of cell from another type of cell could be very useful for various medical applications. And optical tweezers have become one of the main tools that we used for investigating this intricate, complex machinery of life on the very small scale. So now let's talk about the other winners of the Nobel Prize, Gerard Moreau and Donna Strickland. Their research paved the way towards the shortest and most intense laser pulses ever created by mankind. The initial revolutionary article, which was described by Jim Woodgut on Twitter as the science equivalent of a mic drop, was published in 1985 and was the foundation of Strickland's PhD thesis, which, as I said already, means that she did most of the work. Using an ingenious approach, they succeeded in creating ultra-short, high-intensity laser pulses, without destroying the material that amplified the lasers. When we speak of intensity in terms of light, we're talking about a power divided by a unit area. For example, at the radius of the Earth, the sun's rays transmit around 1400 watts of power per square metre. The power of a pulse is just the energy released over time. So if you want a big power, you can get a large amount of energy or a very, very small amount of time, a very small pulse, and that can lead to an extremely large intensity. Strickland was a PhD student working with Moreau at the University of Rochester when they discovered the trick for amplifying laser pulses in 1985. To give you a back-of-the-envelope calculation about the idea of the intensity of the light that we're dealing with here, um, their paper quotes that these laser will eventually be able to produce pulses of one joule worth of energy, for around a picosecond. That's 10 to the minus 12 of a second, a millionth of a millionth of a second, which means that the power produced is briefly a terawatt. That's the unit we use to measure the electricity consumption of entire countries. As of mid-2018, there's around a terawatt of solar panel power capacity installed in the whole world. By the way, that's up from 200 gigawatts in 2010, so five times as many solar panels in eight years, but don't let me drool over solar panel exponentials anymore. So this is why you have to be very careful. Laser physicists like to quote their numbers in power. And while it's impressive that, for a brief fraction of a second in 1985, Strickland and Moreau were capable of producing a laser beam with power equivalent to all of the solar panels in the world operating at maximum capacity in direct sunlight, but it's also true that the fraction of a second was a very, very small fraction of a second. But the sheer power of such a laser 
concentrated on a very small region of space, even if it's just for an instant, can be devastating to materials. Typically, when you try to amplify a light pulse like a laser beam, you pass it through a lasing material. LASER is an acronym. It stands for Light Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation. And without going into too many details, the essential idea is you use certain crystals in the lasing material. Popular ones include ruby lasers and neodymium YAG. Uh, there are many materials that can laze, but these are some of the best. When you flood those crystals with an electrical current, or light from another source, the atoms become excited. They move up into a higher energy level. Specifically, the excited electrons move from a lower energy orbit to a higher energy orbit around the atom's nucleus. When they then return to their normal or ground state, the electrons emit photons. Typically, they do this at random, that's called spontaneous emission, at a constant average rate. But if you tickle the atoms just right with a particular electrical or magnetic field, you can make all of those excited atoms de-excite within a very short space of time, releasing a huge number of photons in a process called stimulated emission. These photons are all at the same wavelength, and they're coherent, meaning that the crests and troughs of the light waves are all marching in lockstep together. In contrast, ordinary visible light is many wavelengths, and it's not coherent. So this is why lasers provide a very intense, monochromatic, single-wavelength, single-colour form of light that can interfere with itself so well. So to amplify such a laser, what do you do? Well, you don't really stick it through a magnifying glass. Typically, you want to pass it through more of that same lasing medium, the material that contains those atoms which can emit light at that particular frequency. After all, more atoms resonating and releasing their photons at once means a more powerful laser. The only issue is that, beyond a certain point of amplifying it, the sheer power blasting through the laser material was sufficient to destroy most lasers. Worse still, when you pump really intense laser light through a substance, like the crystal that's trying to produce more laser photons, the intense electromagnetic fields of that laser actually serve to distort the crystal, and they further focus the light onto a tiny point. In other words, the beam self-focuses, and it burns holes in whatever laser medium you try to use. So this was putting a cap on how powerful the lasers people could create actually were. As Strickland put it, you could have high-energy lasers, or you could have short-duration lasers, but you couldn't have both. That was at least until she and her supervisor invented a neat trick for generating these high-power lasers. That trick was to first stretch out a short pulse of laser light, so that the high-frequency component of the pulse lags behind the low-frequency component. This stretched-out, chirped pulse therefore has its energy distributed over a larger length of space, a larger length of time, because it's been stretched out so that the frequencies have been separated. Such a pulse is referred to as a chirped pulse. In the same way that a chirp is a sound, uh, for example, you can get it on Audacity, which is the sound editing software I'm using, is a sort of dragged-out, separated uh, set of frequencies going from low to high. And this chirped pulse can then be amplified without damaging the laser, because the energy is spread out. And then afterwards you can then recompress the pulse. Different people were trying to get short pulses amplified in different ways, Strickland explained to Quanta magazine. It was thinking outside the box, to stretch first and then amplify. In fact, even Strickland didn't believe the magnitude of what they discovered initially. 
The first experiment created a laser that could produce gigawatt power, but the pair calculated that it could potentially make lasers that were a petawatt in power. She describes what happens next. My very first talk that I ever gave, she said, the very first one that we published in 1985, made a gigawatt of power. But my supervisor said, when you go give your talk, you say this is the way to make a petawatt laser. As a very young student, I said, you want me to say we have a gigawatt laser, but we can make a petawatt? And that's like six orders of magnitude more. Of course, I knew we were right. It just seemed a very bombastic way for me to say it in front of the experts of the world. I found that hard. End quote. So modest. The most commonly cited use case for chirped pulse amplification, aside from virtually every use of high-power lasers in any experiment in the future, is LASIK eye surgery. So the point of having this more powerful, more intensely focused laser of this kind is that it acts like an extremely sharp surgical tool, allowing you to very precisely control the holes that you're slicing and dicing in materials, and, you know, your location of focus and the amount of energy that you deliver. According to the Nobel Prize website, quote, Strickland and Moreau's newly invented technique, called chirped pulse amplification, CPA, soon became the standard for all subsequent high-intensity lasers. Its uses include the millions of corrective eye surgeries that are conducted every year, using the sharpest of laser beams. And from Quantum Magazine, Short pulse lasers have a large panoply of uses beyond eye surgery, with ramifications throughout physics, biology, chemistry, material science, industry, and medicine. Quote, In my view, chirped pulse amplification is as important an invention as the laser itself, said Matthias Kling, a laser physicist at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. After their initial discovery, laser pulses have continued to get shorter and more intense, leading in recent years to the development of attosecond physics, which probes properties and dynamics of matter on the scale of billionths of billionths of a second, fast enough to see electrons moving inside atoms and molecules. Attophysics has impact on many fields since the dynamics of electrons are responsible for how matter interacts with light. Applications range from speeding up electronics to the ultimate limit, the speed of light, to new photonic and spectroscopic tools for cancer detection. Attosecond light pulses could not be generated without chirp pulse amplification, which was invented by Donna Strickland and Gerard Moreau. So, alongside all of that, I think there's a few very particular applications for these ultra-high power, incredibly fast lasers that I think would just be worth highlighting and discussing for a moment. So first off, these incredible lasers are not only our main tool for manipulating matter on very small scales, but they're also the most important tool we have for probing how light and matter interact. And we've talked already about how this is crucial for analysing materials, uh, creating quantum computers, anything like that. But it's also very important in materials that might make for new candidates for solar cells and solar panels. There are vast underground laboratories filled with huge, complicated arrangements of lasers and amplifiers, and they probe and prod at the optical properties of various materials. How they behave when they're exposed to light, how the electrons respond to a pulse, how they're transported through the material, how they resonate, how they absorb and transmit energy. This kind of fundamental understanding of the photonics, the optoelectronics of materials, how the light and the electrons interact, is crucial to many of the developments in solar panels we talked about in Splitting Sunbeams, our previous episode, where efficiency for solar panels is starting to strain at and beyond the classical physical limits. And more efficient solar panels is good for all of us. And finally, as I may have already mentioned, 
I'm currently writing a series of episodes about nuclear fusion. All I can say is that I really hope you guys are interested in nuclear fusion, because this is going to be a series unparalleled in scope and detail compared to anything that we've done so far, and I'm really, really excited to bring it to you. But one of the ways that humans have, so far unsuccessfully, tried to release energy by forcing nuclei to fuse together is by zapping them with incredibly high-powered lasers. And it would be almost impossible to get lasers with anything like this power and intensity without the discoveries made by Donna Strickland and Gerard Moreau back in the 1980s, for which they are now, quite rightly, being honoured. So that's the end of our 2018 Nobel Prize special. I have to be honest, the news and the world has been quite depressing lately, particularly when I think about the uh, report. Uh, It can feel like a particularly dim place at the moment, so for more on this, tune in to the special report we have about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, which will probably show up this weekend or later when I actually have time to write and record it. You know, unbelievably, this isn't my day job. But as dismal as the world might seem sometimes, there's still so much joy to be found in the world of science, the world of physics, and the glorious intricacies of the vast, complex, beautiful, mysterious universe that we all live in. And I think, as much as we might reflect on the things that the species has done and think maybe it's not all good, the human ingenuity that has gone into allowing us to discover these things, allowing me to tell you these things, allowing us to make strides towards understanding these things, is one of the best parts of our species. Both of these discoveries, chirped pulse amplification and optical tweezers, represent clever tools that we have developed to allow us to probe and explore and understand nature, and there can be few, fewer greater undertakings than that. So here's to the scientists who won the Nobel Prize in 2018 for giving us the tools that can help in many more discoveries to come. That's all for this special episode. Remember, if you like the show, which consumes my nights and weekends with its fiery lust, there are plenty of things you can do to support us. Visit the website at www.physicspodcast.com, where you'll find a contact form, I read all your email and try to respond where I can, but it's really the best part about doing this show is actually hearing from listeners, so you can know that if nothing else, you'll make my day by sending your message. So go ahead, punk. There you'll also find a form where you can donate to the show, purchase some of our previous bonus episodes. There's a Patreon where you can subscribe to do that automatically in the future, so you don't even need to fiddle with PayPal. You can follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod, and on Facebook, Physical Attraction. You can go to our sister show, and by our sister show I mean the other thing I recorded in my spare time, Autocracy Now at www.autocracynow.libson.com. We're just coming to the end of Stalin's life, which I can tell you is a relief for me personally and the people of the world in general. But as I always say, the best thing you can possibly do to support is tell your friends about the show and to tell them to listen. And I've printed up many, many postcard-sized flyers that you can put around the place, so if you really want to go the extra mile or just give people some merchandise with our heart-shaped logo on, get in touch with me and I can send some of them over to you. Until next time, then, be kind to each other.
saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.